Hello and welcome back to Generation One. We are on to our second episode. This is your favorite nasally voice coming to you all the way from the wild west of Ellensburg, Washington to bring you more entertainment and hopefully more good content. I want to start off by giving a big thank you to Big Country Media. Without them, none of this would be possible. I can barely work an iPhone, let alone produce a podcast. All right, so Thank you to the guys at Big Country Media. I couldn't do it without you. Big thank you, as always, to my beautiful wife, Sue Ellen, my beautiful daughter, Dallas Marie, and Riley Box, who works for us and is a dear, dear friend as well. Without them, none of this would be possible. With that being said, I want to address my haters again. Where are you at, folks? Um, obviously, I did not do a good enough job on the first podcast, and nobody's listening because I haven't got any hate mail. So I am offended by not being offended. So maybe this is the week. Maybe we're going to start blowing up and we'll hear it. But until then, I'll be waiting. We have a dynamic duo on tonight. We're going to talk cattle. We're going to talk sheep. We're going to talk marketing, money, and their background. I think they come to this industry with a little bit different journey than some, and I hope that they'll be able to speak to those of you that maybe came from a place like them, have bounced around. They manage a huge life, multiple careers. We've got Josh, who is a cattleman who works uh, for and with his family operation. We've got Denise, who's running a very large sheep operation, and we're going to hear from both of them tonight for your listening pleasure. All righty, welcome Maven Camps. I appreciate you guys carving time out of your busy schedule here to join me on the Generation One podcast. I have had a heck of a time getting to know you guys. It has been a real blast. The first time I ever knew anything about you guys actually was I was back at the Oklahoma, um, the breakout sale there, and I saw Denise. I saw her from a distance, and she was showing like 862 sheep, like managing it all basically on her own with a little bit of help. And it was kind of a funny day because I thought you guys brought a hell of a set and I'm not going to start any shit here, but I thought you had a really good one that I thought was going to place a little bit higher. And I watched Denise in the ring and she's like, uh, what just happened here? And then she walked out, was like, piss on it, grabbed a beer, showed the next sheep. And it was awesome. And I knew at that time we were all going to be friends. You guys didn't know that, but I chose that for all of us that you guys were going to be my friend, whether you wanted to or not. And then we came down and clipped bulls there at Spring Cove, which we're going to dive into here in just a second because you guys just had a hell of a sale. And that was obviously a rip-roaring good old-fashioned Idaho time, and it will leave a lasting impression on my life for more than one reason, Uh, most of it not appropriate for this podcast. But with that, we're talking about Spring Cove. We just came off a hell of a sale. Um, Really, there's a lot of good sales out here, and I don't want to take anything away from the bull sales out here, but not often or rarely ever do you come out into the western United States and see an Angus bull or a bull of any breed for that matter uh, busting up over six figures? That's extremely impressive. So I'm going to kick this podcast off. Josh, why don't you tell us about your family's operation there at Spring Cove, how it's evolved, and really uh, your involvement in that program? Well, Cody, this thing's a generational journey. I mean, if you think about it, um, Arch's granddad brought these cows over in 1908. Um, 
from there, he brought them over for a neighbor. From there, in 1919, the neighbor sold out and he bought them and started raising registered Angus cattle right here on this place. And uh, he was very aggressive. I mean, he was an aggressive stockman, showed cattle across the country, um, raised elite perchant horses, uh, cavalry remounts. I mean, he was one of those true livestock people that, you know, probably in this generation we don't know about. A couple of generations go by, Art starts this. And for those of you that don't know, Art's my stepdad. Um, I was lucky enough to, you know, get him involved in my life when I was two. And, um, you know, Art had a passion for this purebred cattle thing. My mom had a passion for the purebred cattle thing and promotion. And here I was at foot when this whole thing started, you know, when we really started pushing it again. And, um, you know, this was our 30th full sale. Um, I kind of had the unique fortune opportunity, you know, I grew up with a purebred cattle passion, but I also grew up like in a, in, in a playpen in a dairy barn. Both my dad and my mom both had dairies and we sat in the dairy barn and we watched cattle move through. And I, I, I really truly believe in terms of evaluation and a passion for livestock, you know, growing up, you know, in a playpen in a dairy barn, probably where it all started, but. You know, the six-figure thing, I think, is the minute point. I know that that's the bright lights point of what we've done at Spring Cove. Um, the day-to-day, hand-to-hand combat of commercial cattlemen have supported this thing year in, year out, because these cattle have the opportunity to make their cattle better in a real-world, make-a-living scenario is probably the reason we're at the point we are now. Um you know, working with family and, you know, my mom and Art and I, we have a, a close relationship from the standpoint of breeding, marketing, managing the set of cows. And I mean, just trying to keep it extremely realistic in terms of how we're building them with a phenotype, you know, emphasis from the standpoint of nobody wants to do chores and look at an ugly one, but yet nobody wants to feed a I'm going to make fun of the sheep guys for a minute, a short bladed, hard gutted one either in the beef cattle business. So, um, you know, you got to make these things work, work in Western range conditions. And, you know, it's like the fruit of the labor, the more cattle work for commercial customers, the more commercial customers get rewarded. The fact that the back, back after that bull sale was as strong as any sale that, you know, we've ever had the opportunity to have. And we have that huge amount of commercial, support I think allows for the upside to be there so that's the Spring Cove story as of today and uh, we're fortunate to be able to you know push forward with these boys and I got some boys that are very interested in the cattle side and you know one that's very interested in the sheep thing and and move forward and, and continue that generational journey right right well that was beautiful um super annoying because it was like very beautiful and not about the sexy excitement of the six-figure bull but I'm going to push you on that and we're going to talk a little bit more about that but I agree I think that that's truly what was impressive about that sale you know you start taking those high sellers out and a lot of sales you know you'll see one maybe bring you know more modest maybe fifty sixty thousand dollars and you know that really brings anybody that has a lot to do with bull sales knows that 
you know, you may look at it and say, well, that's only one bull. Well, that brings a sale average up a lot. And I watched your guys' sale. Um, I was cleaning out the trailer, so I popped in and off, and I kept waiting for it to fall off because 90% of bull sales do. You get into that bottom third, you know, and the prices go down, and there, you know, maybe you have to sell a choice here or there to try to get some bulls moved. But I mean, it, it was just four or five, six thousand dollars all day to the very end. Um, and that that's truly what makes a program. And I agree. And as we get into talking about sheep, cattle, it doesn't matter. You know, it's not what you can sell that one high dollar for one for. It's what you can sell all of the rest of them for. And if you can keep that consistent high quality and keeping people happy, happy, what you consider to be your bottom enders are still going to bring a really great price. And we're going to dive into a lot of that when we start talking about advertising, marketing, customer service. Uh, but first, I want to jump back over to Denise. So Denise, as I talked about in the last podcast and in the intro of this, she's like a sheep legend, badass lady, and she's managing like 500 mature ewes. Why don't you tell us about your kind of background and story, Denise, because I originally thought you were Idaho born and bred, and I didn't realize you grew up out there with like Colby Birch, and you were right out in that area, and then you made the pillage out west out here to end up with Joshua, God bless, you know. So why don't you tell us your background and how you got to where you are? Well, I grew up in Torrington, Wyoming. My parents, I guess, um, weren't really, my dad and mom both grew up on farms, but my dad actually worked for my grandpa. They owned an implement dealership in town. So I'm kind of like a kid that grew up with ag, an ag background, but not really like parents that were in production agriculture. I got my first sheep when I was eight years old. Did not want to sell it. Her name was Bridget. I probably still have sheep that go back to her. I don't know. I'd have to really like dig back, but um, so mom and dad found a way for her to get bread. And I guess this is just a 4-H project gone completely crazy. Um, went through high school 4-H and FFA. I was um, a state FFA officer in Wyoming, very, very active in FFA. Ended up in, yes, um, grew up judging and competing and showing against Jeremy Burkett, Colby Birch, a lot of a lot of people that are still around the industry, if you look look pretty hard, and, and that in Wyoming, even though there's not very many people in Wyoming, I think that we're always produced really high quality people in the ag industry, just because I think you got to be really stinking tough to grow up there. Um, our county just had, like, it was a phenomenal county to grow up competitive wise, because it didn't matter if it was the hog show, the cattle show, or the sheep show, like. Goshen County, Wyoming was ready to show up wherever um, wherever you look, like if you go to Denver or if you go to the State Fair, like we were just always wanting to be on top. And there's still a lot of people like um, that are on top of the world that are from where I grew up. So then I went to Casper College, judged for Kelly Birch, um, probably had more of an average judging career there because I, I love Kelly Birch. Josh and I go visit him every single fall, but I was a bit intimidated by him and reasons were always a little more of a, um, I could see livestock, but I was always a little, even with my FFA background, I was a little shyer in the reasons room. So, um, took a year off, went to Colorado state and then Josh, we started dating, I guess the end of Casper college, the last kind of 
couple weeks of uh, while I was at Casper College, and I dated him throughout while he was finishing up because I'm the cougar, I guess is what he calls me, especially since I'm almost 40. Um, that we started dating, I dated through with him like all the way through Colorado State, and then he convinced me somehow to go live in the rain at Oregon State. And we had a very successful judging career at Oregon State. Um, won Fort Worth. Him and I were first and second in Fort Worth. And that's the only contest that, I don't know, he'd have to explain how I should have beat him, but the way they break ties. But he beat me still, so it was kind of annoying. Um, Louisville ended up a little more disappointing for our team, but we really had a strong team. Um, and then... Him and I got married, I guess, at, when we were done. We did, had a couple of views. My parents said, here, yours are sheep. I'm tired of having them. So he's, they sent them out to us. We took them with us to Iowa. We brought them back. Uh, his dad raised them for a little while. We were running around the world doing what Josh did. He, um, he managed some purebred cattle operations. And when we came back, we really started about 2010, looking back into raising more sheep and from 2010 until now, we've just kind of grown like crazy. And like you said, we have 500 views. Um, yeah, manage them every day, all day today. You know, this time of year, we kind of, you know, that one stupid Facebook meme where it's got somebody said, I love sheep. I love sheep. I love sheep with all the months. This is the month you're like, oh, why do I have so many sheep? So, <laughs> but um had a lot of fun doing this and along the way and it's just a 4-H project gone mad I guess and it found me a pretty cute little Idaho cowboy I guess he's not little along the way yeah he's a giant um I have a <laughs> lot of friends that are tall and I thought my friend Pete who bull clips with me when we were down there I, he always makes me feel short and then I met Josh and I was like I feel small um he's yes. a giant but Yes, that is such a cool journey, and I think it speaks to a lot of people, too, that it's like, again, 4-H and FFA and how important these things are. You know, get involved, and it's not because of just what you're going to do, whether you win a public speaking contest. It's the connections that you make, the confidence that it gives you to go out there into the ag industry and to speak to people um, my old ag advisor, which I hope she listens to this, I'm sure she will, Tina DeVault and Jessica Moore, but especially Tina DeVault, what I'm about to say, she was insane. And I thought that woman was off her rocker, but she taught me how to be confident and how to be strong and how to go up and talk to people and not to take shit from people either. That woman, she was a redhead and she earned every ounce of that red hair. You know, she was a firecracker and she's like, if you want something, you go for it. And if they don't want you to be a part of it, to hell with it, find the next opportunity. So, yes, I do encourage that for the young listeners that are in FFA and 4-H, get everything you can out of that. Now, we've gone Absolutely. over, yeah, I, it's great. And so we've gone over how we sort of got to where we are today. I'm going to shift to the sheep side a little bit here just because while you guys are obviously heavily involved in Spring Cove, for those of you guys who haven't been out to Maven Camp Livestock, they purchase a piece of property that is right adjacent. So, I mean, it's a big part of their everyday life. I've had a lot more involvement in the sheep program, and I that's something – 
that you guys have built together outside of the ranch. And I think that's what's great about this episode is we get a look at something that's multi-generational. And when we get into the marketing, I really want to dive into that bull sale because I know Josh was instrumental in really firing that up. And that's a key component of going to that next generation. But right now, I want to focus on generation one of Maven Camp Livestock. I've met your boys. Hopefully, they're going to be generation two. When you guys decided to get into that, I know you guys had bounced back and forth a little bit back to the Midwest together and then you guys back to Idaho and you landed there and I know the operation really blew up we're gonna get uncomfortable and weird and don't be like ah we're gonna go ahead and talk about money for a minute and I always like to bring that up because even though everybody gets awkward and weird about it it's the most important part you know we got to figure out how do we pencil this out how do we still pay our mortgage how do we keep doing what we love to do so josh why don't you break into that when you decided you're going to invest your money what were some key components that you were looking for in buying sheep and you know what are some of those ways you look to finance it because i think it's really important like we talked about there's a lot of people that are working jobs outside of this not all of us get to do this full time they're working their way into it so it's their hard-earned money that they're saving up for and some people i know i'm trying to look more into fsa loans and how those kinds of things work but you know how did you decide to invest your money and is that something that's coming from an outside job uh where was what was your mindset as you guys decided we're going to take this little group of sheep and we're going to grow it into 500 ewes well we were sitting in a situation where we had one and a half kids and we were both working and we had a daycare situation and it just kind of got to the point when we had two kids and a handful of sheep that I didn't want daycare to raise my kids. And Denise had a huge sheep passion. And one thing that I'm very confident in in life is if somebody has a passion for something, that's what they're going to be good at. And so I made that decision with Denise, her and I talked, is I'm going to continue to go to work and, and make sure the household bills and things like that are paid but let's dig in and let's build this thing. I mean, let, let, let's build a program and let's build it not on the short-term gains of hype and craziness. Let's build it on the long-term goals of you families, you know, from my cattle background, you know, with a cow family idea. And, and let's make this thing from the ground up and let's get, let's buy volume, you know, that are genetically similar. And then let's put some pressure on them from an environmental standpoint, a reproduction standpoint. Let's figure out which ones work, which ones don't, and let's start building a program. And Denise had the opportunity to do what she absolutely loves to do. And my boys had the opportunity never to go to a babysitter unless it was grandma. And that was just because they were tired of working with their mom and they wanted to go play and watch cartoons. So um, from the money standpoint, where did we decide to invest? Uh, I dealt with people I knew. Um, if I call somebody one time and I don't get a phone call back, I don't ever call them again. And I'm going to miss out on genetics because I don't have the patience to deal with people that don't like to call you back. I don't call people all the time and I don't bother people all the time. And if they don't take the time to talk to me, then I'm not going to call you back again. So if they answered their phone, I liked what they were selling. I knew them from the past. I mean, you know, whatever reason it might have been, 
or it was, I mean, I got lots of relationships I built within this business. It was people that kind of had the, a similar mindset from the standpoint of the, you know, not necessarily just the production traits, but the phenotype we were looking for, things that we were doing. Um, that's, I guess to put it real weird and real, I only gave money to people that I decided I liked. And I'm only disappointed in my investments of people that I realized were dumb shits when I was done giving them my money. So I don't regret any of the, the sheep purchases we've made along the way as long as the people that we made it with were people that we, you know, feel comfortable doing business with. So then we threw the gas to it and, you know, Will is 11 and Denise has been home for 10 and a half years now, raising sheep full time. So it's been very good to be able to raise these kids and chase them everywhere we're doing and and, and, and have her here. I mean, I mean, let's be honest, she's Gavin Heifers. She's helping me synchronize cows. She's doing the lamb and then she's doing the work. And I go to work every day to keep the household stuff done. And it works very, very well for us. Well, that is an awesome answer to that question. And there's a few things I want to touch on because a lot of that speaks to me as well. Because part of that's very similar to Sue and I's journey into gold standard livestock. You know, a lot of people don't realize daycare is extremely expensive. And it, especially if you have multiple kids, it gets to where somebody almost has to work a full-time job, you know, just to pay for that daycare expense. And that's kind of where Sue and I were at when we first had Dallas. We looked at it and said, you know, this doesn't really make sense. You know, half of your paycheck is going to go to paying for somebody else to raise our kid. That being said, my mom had an at-home daycare when I was young, and I get – you know, everybody's life is different, so I'm not shitting on daycare people. Do what you feel like is right for your family. But for us, we felt like we want to do something that we can stay at home because we're obsessed with our child and that we can be more a part of their life. So that was the same thing I said. You know, at the time I was working for my father's construction company, and we decided it made more sense for me to keep working there while Sue stayed at home with Dallas. And in turn, like you said with Denise, that comes, it, it's really a loaded thing. We say, oh, you know, stay home, take care of the kid. Also, hey, can you like clean out the feed room, calve heifers, do the use, you know, and everything else that we can't do because we're not there. So it becomes a big thing, but it, it is. It, that's something that I encourage a lot of generation one people to look at is how you spend your money. It's a scary step to say, we're going to go down to one income. And, but if you look at the lifestyle change that it's able to afford you and how much further, if you and Denise were both working full-time jobs right now, she wouldn't be able to pay all that attention to the sheep that she is that's getting you guys to where you are in that program. Another thing that you guys touched on that I think is so big is the calling back, the customer service. It's funny that you mentioned that because I was all fired up about it because I had been trying to get a hold of some people um, on my way over here to do this podcast. And I am so sick and tired. Excuse my rant, people. If you don't like it, like skip, a, you know, hit that 30 second ahead button, but not calling people back. And if one more person makes an excuse for somebody and says, well, they're really busy, you know, that's why they can't call you back. It's like, oh, well, that's good because I was watching Oprah, you know, throwing back a whiskey all day and, you know, just waiting for someone to call me back. It's like, no. 
what the hell does that mean? We're all busy. You don't get to be in the livestock industry in really any capacity. I don't care if you have two U's or 2,000 U's and you work other jobs and you do other things. All of us are busy. So I feel like thank you for touching on customer service. We need to talk about that. And we're going to get into that more. But, you know, doing business with people that value you from the start and value customer service, I think is so essential and crucial for a generation one or a startup livestock industry because those are the people that have your back when you don't know. Colby Birch is really good about that. I can text him at 3 in the morning and say, hey, I'm having this lambing wreck. I'm dumb. I don't know what I'm doing. And, you know, if he's awake, he's texting me back. And if not at, like, 4.30 when he's getting up to do chores because they're crazy, you know, he's texting me back. And you need people like that in your corner. So, first of all, thank you, Josh, for touching on that. That being said, as we look at a back view of how you guys got to where you are. Denise, are there some things that you guys did in selecting group of use or whatever you did in building your program that you would say really worked for you? You hit it out of the park or maybe some things that you guys learned from and you do different that you'd give advice to generation one or startup programs that you think would help them as they go on their journey? Well, buying big groups of ewes, you can and you can definitely figure out the coals really quickly. Um, and don't be afraid to take them to the sale barn. I guess that's that's our that was our biggest our biggest thing. Like we'd lamb out a group of ewes, and you know they either wouldn't click with our bucks, or they just were poor moms, or didn't work in our environment because we really are hard on sheep here. I know. Um, you come to our house and you're not going to see fat, slick ewes that are shorn a couple times a year. A year, They're going to be ran kind of in a more, um, kind of like my father-in-law does in a more practical sense of a forage-based diet. Um, they live outside prim primarily. They have to go graze the pasture. They have to come off that pasture fat and pregnant, hopefully. And if they don't, then they're not going to last very long at our house. They're gone. So um, I really am hard on ewes that don't milk very well either or um, aren't very good moms. Like I, I hate when they beat on their lambs or step on their lambs. I, I fire sheep a lot and people make fun of me, I guess, because of that. But I, I don't have a, a problem taking one to the sale barn and try not to have too many heartstrings attached to one because I know that's something sometimes people do. They'll be like, well, I spent this much money on this one, but if if she doesn't work, she doesn't work um, for you. Yes, I agree. And I, I think that that's something that a lot of people in the sheep industry and I'm probably going to offend some people here, has been shocking to me coming from a cattle background getting into sheep the lack of emphasis put on mothering ability or survivability um, is kind of shocking to me. And I get that a lot of sheep operations in this country and really, really good ones and high-end sheep operations, you know, a lot of them are raised in barns or, you know, more controlled environments that allow for that. Um, but even you take that out, you know, put them in a perfectly environmentally controlled barn, you know, a ewe that doesn't milk, doesn't feel like, being a mother, you know, maybe you have to pull giant lambs every single year. Uh, to me, that's exhausting. 
And I will tell all of the folks listening is it's no joke when they're saying this. They're not blowing smoke. I've been to Maven Camp Livestock, and it is sagebrush for as long as the eye can see. And the sheep are really out up on a knoll. They've got a little bit of windbreak there, but not much. I mean, they have to survive and really do their job. And that's what I appreciate about your guys' program. And we bought our first Maven Camp sheep this year, first of many, I'm sure. But uh, we bought a weather, you know, and since we've got him, he's traveled to California through a snowstorm here recently, which I was hoping to never have to say. I don't know why it was snowing there, but um, you know, he's been up at our place. He's traveled from down there. We He went through a time where we were hitting 16 degrees or, or single digits at night. He never got sick. He never went off feed. And I think that raising livestock like that makes a better product for those juniors buying them so that they can buy a hardier product that they're able to feed in a lot of different environments. And that's why I also appreciate Josh as you're always bringing me back down to earth. You know, I'm always looking at something flashy or excited about it. And Josh, you know, is like, well, you know, that's not very practical and on the ranch. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, shut up. Let me do my flashy thing, you know. But in reality, that's what's made your guys' program what it is. So I can I can really appreciate that. Yeah, our lambs are outside. They're pretty much their entire life. I mean, and we don't. I've never really gotten complaints from people when we sell sheep for like barn cough, pneumonia, things like that. They're tough. And they've sometimes it's, it's hard to get them to a sale and have them as bloomy and fat as other people have, just because we do kind of run everything in a rougher um, setting. And, but I, not very often do I have to like answer those phone calls of, of an unhealthy lamb because they are, they're definitely tough if they've lived here. So, and like I said, like our, they do have to mother because we do not have a lambing barn. They're outside. It's, and if it's crappy weather, they better be like spitting those lambs out, kicking them, getting them up, licking them off, making them eat. If I, you know, happen to sleep for, through my alarm, they better, you know, be up. So it's a, uh, they got to run a little harder. And if you think Josh is the guy that talks about practical, you should meet my father-in-law. So, (laughs) yeah. So. No, and I think that's great. And that actually, you know, real talk here for a minute, you know, as we got into that kind of cold snap that all of us out West here got where it got really cold, you know, it's, I, I don't know why I've done this job of convincing people that we're doing all these flashy things at Gold Standard. Real talk is I basically raise my sheep in pins in my backyard, you know, and when all that weather was hitting, this was the first time we had a big set of ewes that we were trying to lay them out, and I'm like, you know, great, they're all going to die. We've got a little lambing barn that we can throw a couple in, you know, if we've got problems or if we need to bring something inside, we can, but in reality, I don't have the room, so, you know, these lambs get like two days at max and you're back out in the 16 degrees in the snow and you got to figure out how to live and i was terrified because i've seen so many operations that are so climate controlled and how they raise those sheep that i was like great all my sheep are gonna die i'm gonna go poor you know i don't have the body to be hooking for money so i was like this is it for me and i i was really honest to god when i came down there to clip bulls i was really reassured i'm like here are the maven cam sheep you know they're out in the elements. It's cold. It's windy. 
you know, you guys have like one lean to on the back that, you know, a couple amps can get under, but it's so tall, the wind's getting anywhere in there anyway. So, I mean, they're doing the damn thing and it made me feel really good going home that, all right, I've seen the Maven camp sheep can do it. You know, y'all bitches better figure it out too. Um, because I, I know it can be done. So with that being said, I want to move on to the next segment here. And I want to talk about marketing and advertising and how you guys really have found is the best way to market your sheep. Um, but first, okay, scratch that. We're going to back up here a minute because I'm not letting Josh get out of this as far as talking about these high dollar bulls. And I don't want to just apply it to those bulls. For those of you that don't know, aren't in the commercial or the Angus world, uh, Josh and his family, they sold two bulls that gross almost 200k themselves. Um, I want to go back to, I remember you guys were one of the contending bidders, if not the contending bidder on that buck that Tyson Rule sells for almost $100,000. Um, and I know you guys have been involved in some of those big deals. So first I want to touch on that. What is your guys' experience, suggestion for those people looking to go to the next level on something that is maybe out of their price range. They need to put a group together, but they feel it's important for them for a marketing standpoint. How do those kinds of deals come together? What do those look like? And maybe, Josh, I know you were obviously in on the bulls and a part of that. Why don't you take that at first? You know, there becomes some chatter at the very beginning when you make one, you know, and, and there's some chatter and you can hear chatter and you can hear the interest coming and the people are excited. And from that standpoint, you know what it is. I guess from my standpoint, in terms of putting a group together or organizing a high seller, that is nothing that I've ever done or anybody in our world's ever done. I mean, we let those guys get together. We've been fortunate enough to have, you know, some aggressive cattlemen, start paying attention to this program and when aggressive cattlemen start paying attention, then everybody knows it's going to cost more money and, you know, you know, outside of anything and, and the same probably with that buck we played with at Reno, um, the, the owner of that buck never, never tried to put anything together. We put it together on our own and bid on that sheep. So I would say that from a marketing standpoint, the worst thing you could ever do is get involved in your buyer's mess when they're trying to put something together. Okay, that's that's really good to know, and that's something I was going to touch on. We at Gold Standard haven't really come together on some things that we've worked on some a couple projects that we didn't quite get there and get them bought to be flashy, but we, we did work on those in... My advice on that to newcomers in is when you see something, you hear that chatter, you feel that hype, and you're like, okay, I don't have the budget. I'm not going to make this happen. Don't hesitate to reach out to people and say, hey, I found something really cool. Do you want to be a part of this? My disclaimer with that is, is make sure it's people you trust, people you know you can do business with, especially if you're getting on the male side of things, and it's something that breedings are going to have to be split up on make sure it's people you can work with and then i would say as well make sure you lay out a plan making contracts making plans doesn't mean you don't trust each other it means that you can remain friends at the end of that and i've learned that the hard way back in the cattle deal of going into a partnership without laying out any kind of plan or contract and it really ended terribly so 
you know, go into it and say, hey, I need it for me to work. I need to have this bucket this time or on this bull or whatever it is. I need this amount of semen out of it. I want this percentage of sales for it to pencil out for me. Be upfront about it because all that does is save a lot of headaches down the road. Would you agree with that, Josh? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, from the, you know, purchaser standpoint, there's no question from time to time you talk to things. But I would say at a seller standpoint, our success has been 100% dictated by our ability to not get involved in the, in the noise in the middle. You know, if you got a sale, have a sale. Honor your sale. Put the one for sale that you have for sale. And let the only true place to actually, you know, establish value, establish the value. And that's in a public auction. And, you know, I think that was the, the key to our success at Spring Cove this spring. Well, that's really good because I think that a lot of people that are trying to get there, they don't know how to manage that. And it is nerve wracking, especially in any species when you have a really good one or you feel like you have something deserving of the attention and the money that you think it should bring. Our natural instinct is instinct is to make calls, get involved. And so I really appreciate that advice of just saying, let the chips fall where they may. And, you know, when it's your time, it's your time. I want to hop back over to the sheep here in the advertising and marketing and that with Denise. Um, two things I want to touch on. One, where do you find your biggest impact for the dollar as far as advertising, whether it be any kind of print publication online or if we're going strictly social media? And then when you're done with that, let's touch on getting sheep ready for live sales because we're getting ready to start hitting a lot of live sales. I'm traveling back with uh, you guys back to Midwest Elite there. And I know for me personally, because I'm raising backyard sheep, like I said, you know, it's a little bit harder for me to get these sheep ready. So let's first get into where are we advertising these sheep and how are we getting them ready? Well, social media, I guess, is probably our biggest advertise, advertising um, venue. Uh, couple years ago we sold a lunchbox sheep in the fall that just went kind of viral and um kind of was our first buck that we actually sold for a little bit of money and I took, I happened to get lucky and get a really good video of him in a pen and it just got shared around Facebook like crazy and um I think that that is our it's still I spend quite a bit of money actually in the spring trying to push stuff out and get things on Facebook so where people can see them um, I'm probably not as aggressive as I need to be. According to Josh, I need to have more, I need to have more of a social media presence, but I don't like to tell people my day to day, everything I'm doing, what I had for dinner, breakfast, lunch, dinner, that I'm driving in my car, that kind of stuff. But, um, I definitely use social media more than anything. We have a website and I try to keep it up to date, but I think Facebook people go to faster and in instagram too i'm starting to be on instagram more because i think my kids my children's age use instagram more than they than um they use facebook i don't i don't know i guess it's what the old fogies like us use but anyway that's that's kind of where our marketing thing is um i don't know how you could live without it there's times i think facebook has a double-edged sword because it sometimes feels like a time suck but I do think that it is 
highly important to our everyday business. Um, getting sheep ready for live sales, like I said, it was it's kind of it's tough because we have so many sheep and we don't really have um, a barn for the to go separate like those mothers and I know a lot of people will separate the mothers and the ewes for the uh, the mothers and the babies for the sheep that they're taking to a sale and then you know day wean and we just don't have the facility for that and I've tried day weaning before and it just ends up with everything screaming and it like the lambs falling at the ewe and um, we don't have the right kind of jug system or you know like creep system to make that work out so. We just try to get them as ready as we can from the time we wean them um, till we take them to a sale. There's some of our more successful sheep have actually just been out of sale, just been taken right off the mom, put right onto the trailer, taken to, um, you know, a black and white. A couple of years ago, I sold a buck, buck lamb to Eric Shellhouse that was literally weaned the mo- moment I put him on the trailer and he was cute and shapely and ready to go then we called them bodega um but this year i we we did we because our sheep are a little bit older we have put a little more emphasis in getting these indianapolis sheep ready um just because the first year i went out there i knew that we were way too behind this 30-hour haul they've got to they've got to be really bloomy when they hit that trailer because it's amazing to see what a sheep can do with 30 hours on the trailer they will they fall apart really quickly and you work like cat getting back to a place where you're ready to present them in a ring. So, um, yeah, that's, we've, that's what I've been working on this week is trying to get sheep ready to get on the trailer to haul, haul all the way to Indianapolis, getting them fat and gloomy enough that they, they will look kind of probably like other people do when uh, other people sheep that don't have the, quite the haul that we have when we get out there so right right i agree and that's the same thing we're even for a lot of places we're even a little bit farther than you guys and it, it's hard it's hard i've noticed that for all of our listeners out west or even you know that are in the far corners of the u.s maybe you're out northeast uh wherever you are it's very hard for us to travel and look as fresh and especially even you know jumping back to the cattle side of things you know when we go to denver or wherever we're going kansas city you know it takes a lot of time for us to get those cattle looking fresh or those sheep looking fresh or even just like last week we hauled down to northern exposure and a lot of those people you know were five hours in under haul well we're left, you know, almost 11 hours from there. So you show up kind of already with a disadvantage. So I like that advice that you guys gave. And I remember when I was down there, you said, you know, we're going to try to this year get these sheep kind of fat before we leave so that we can allow for shrinkage. So good pro tip to those of you listening out there that want to go to sales or even shows um, farther out there. You might think your heifer is right on the verge of being too fat, but you travel that 20 hours and get to that show. And by the time she shrinks back, uh, she might be just where she needs to be. When you start getting ready to market a set of livestock, whether it be cattle or sheep, what do you do in terms of marketing? Is that something that you guys hold off and you wait to post any pictures, wait to make any calls until they're fully ready? Or is that kind of as soon as you have something hitting the ground and the genetic pieces are there, is that something that you guys are jumping into right away? 
Um, and Denise, since we're talking about getting ready here for Midwest Elite, why don't you jump into that on the sheep, and then Josh will have you talk about that on the bull side. I guess I like to wait until they're ready. I mean, you see a lot of day-old baby lamb pictures in the jugs, and, like, this one's going to ring bells. There's a lot of growing that that sheep needs to do and things that need to happen between point A and point B for it to really probably be the right sheep for somebody. Um, I guess we're prob- we're going to picture our Indianapolis sheep this weekend, tomorrow, starting tomorrow this weekend, and we'll probably start pushing those out. And they're at the point right now, I guess, when we take a picture of them, we'll be really proud of what they look like. And we've figured out what they are and what they what I think we can market to people is what they're going to be. And so they're honest, you know, they're getting their most honest read on that, that sheep that they're going to get, um, what they're going to purchase and ultimately hopefully do, do well with in the end, or, you know, put into their herd if they're a ewe lamb or a buck lamb. So we, I don't know, probably could push stuff a little younger, but I like to, we, I like to wait until I know what I have. And I don't know if that's the right answer or not, you know, like maybe, maybe pushing it on social, social media quicker will be, is, is something gets more presence, but I don't want to look like a fool if it doesn't turn out. I guess that's my biggest fear is I'm like, I'll be over, over egotistical about something and to just look, look uh make it make it'll make me look stupid so <laughs> i don't know I, I i'm a more shy personality in that in that standpoint so well and i hear you there to me i got you know it seems like these sheep sales start earlier and earlier every year i'm waiting for somebody to start you know selling them in the womb you know because <laughs> people do they start posting at 10 days old and they're hey you know we've already got our whole sales schedule lined out for the whole year and i'm like dear god everyone else is going to sell people sheep and i'm going to sell none so it is hard i agree i think it's good to be patient market sheep when they're ready so that you're really proud of the product that people are seeing and i think that we just have to remind ourselves that this industry and this buyer base is a lot bigger you know than we think about most of the time on a small scale there's going to be buyers out there present your sheep when they're ready at least that's what i've been telling myself every day for the past two weeks as i'm getting ready to go to live sales and watching all these online sales happen i could be wrong in 10 episodes from now broke and asking for sponsorships but (laughs) only god knows where this is gonna go so i appreciate that um like I said, Josh, as far as on the cattle side of things for all of our producer, either bull producers out there or purebred cattle producers, when do you really like to start marketing those cattle? You know, the reality of the cattle business for the sheep business, we don't sell any bulls before we have a semen test to make sure they're breeders. So that delays our marketing a long time versus what the sheep business does. And obviously, we're not as smart because we don't sell them high before they could even produce sperm. But yet, it also um, slows down the fact of all the things we have to replace later, if that makes any sense. So, we get to push in the program. And I guess that's what I want to talk about on the sheep side of things, too. Is I mean, individual marketing is what it is, but program marketing is probably the key to what we're trying to do. 
and, and we're trying to brand this thing. We're trying to brand this thing. I mean, and she hashtags it feed and water and she does her things, but build the program on the cattle side, build the program on the sheep side, market the program, get people to the place, let them evaluate and pick out the ones that they want. So, you know, we build a catalog the first of January for our, our bull sale. Our semen test happens the second week of February, and we go to push it on the ones we really like after we know they make sperm and have big enough testicles and do the things that they're supposed to do for a living. So that is, I guess, on the cattle side, that's where we do that. But the entire time, we're, we're, we're trying to brand the program. I mean, trying to brand the cow families and the things that we're building and have the opportunity to sell some females on the side based on a bull's merit or based on their production re- record or what they've built along the way. So well, we I wait think, on the cattle. Uh, yeah, and I, I no, I think that's a really good answer because we do. We get so caught up, you know, when it hits the ground and you're like, all right, this, this one's going to be good. And they probably are. You know, we focus so much on that, and I am very guilty of that as well. You know, you get your three, four, five top picks, and you get obsessed with marketing those individuals that we forget to market the whole program. And I think that's a really good thing for those who are starting up is you might have one or two really good ones, but don't forget to market the brand. Don't market that one really good buck, market all of Maven Camp Livestock. And I think that that's a really good piece of advice that I need to take. And I think a lot of people should take out there as well. As we start to round things out here, I want to go back to the very beginning as you guys, I'm going to ask a hugely loaded question. We'll go ahead and we'll start with Josh. I want to round this out with Denise so you have a, we have some minute to think about it here. But as you look back, is there any big pieces of advice that if you met somebody today that said, I want to be like you, I want to raise a program, I want to work full time at this is there any big do's, big don'ts, any kind of encouragement that you would give those people? Well, I think the big do's is just do it. Just do what you want to do. And the big don'ts is probably don't be like me and don't hit your head against the wall as many times as we had to along the way in terms of getting there. But everybody's going to have their struggles of when you go I say don't follow the trends. I say be you. Raise the ones you like. Figure out how to market the ones you like. And build the program that you're happy with every day going out and feeding and choring and doing. Is I guess my biggest. I've been more disappointed with my cattle and my sheep when I followed the trend or the cool, or what I thought was supposed to be what we were supposed to do. I'm happier with everything we're doing when we're just raising the kind we like at home. I think that that is very sound advice, and that's very universal. And everybody needs to remember that, you know, we all have different financial situations, geographical situations, different kinds of livestock, and there's not a cookie-cutter success type. You know, there's a lot of ways to get to the top of an industry. 
uh, and they all look very, very different. And that's what I really appreciate about both of you guys is, you know, we'll come in and talk cheap and it's like, you know, this is how we like to do it. You guys like to do things very real world, very practical, the way that a lot of us really actually should do it. And then you have young whippersnappers like me who are like, I want to do everything fancy. And I can tell you if I could afford a bunch of barns and raise them inside and micromanage everything, I would in a heartbeat, which is not real world. Um, but it works for other people, you know. But again, I've I've learned and I think, too, with that being said, go and look at a lot of different programs there are so many different pieces we can pull from different programs. Like I go to Maven Camps and like I said, I learned this year that these U's have to work because if I get myself into a situation where I don't have U's that can work right now where I'm at, that that's not going to be survivable. That's not going to pencil out for me. So also along the way, while you're looking at different trends, looking at different things, I agree, don't follow all of them pull the pieces for you that work where you're at, your program and your financial situation. What about you, Denise? Is there anything that you would change or anything that you would really uh, encourage people to do as they go forward with their program? Anything I would change, um, Josh would say, and I would probably say too, that I should say no less because there's a lot of times that um, – He'll have an idea, and most ideas he has, I'm like, no, because that's, <laughs> I'm a pessimist, and that's my first reaction is to always say no because I don't like to take big risks, but um, I guess that would be what you should do is take take risks. I guess take risks to almost to the edge of your comfort zone, and um, hopefully it'll usually work out how it's worked out for us, I guess, over and over again. Um, I guess we are opposite. You wouldn't think that he's the optimist. I'm the pessimist looking at us. If he looks big and grumpy and I'm like usually smiling and happier looking, but it's totally the opposite on the inside. So yeah, take big risks. Don't say no. I guess that's what I would say for people that are getting started in something like this. So because if you don't take the risk, You'll just be wondering what you you could have been doing. So, and I have fun every day. There's some days where I don't think I'm having fun every day, but I definitely have gotten to do after I took that risk of not working anymore. And Josh allowed me to take that risk, not working. I guess I say not working, but not working outside of the home for another company. Because he also tells people I was a banker before he allowed, uh, and then I taught ag for a while, but not having my income at that point looked scary, but it was a huge risk. But now I think we make a whole lot more than I would have ever made at a job in town. So that's perfect. I always tell people, you know, there's so many, we all have so many insecurities and especially when it comes to money, everybody's always afraid that they're going to go broke um, and I mean, I face that too, just like everybody else. And when I said I was going to get into it a little over a year ago, I said, I'm just going to send it and, you know, let go and let God, as the kids say, you know, and see if it all pans out and it's the best decision I ever made. And, you know, talking about making big swings, you know, when you have a gut feeling, I encourage people 
go with it. And no, it's not always going to pan out, but I think nine times out of 10, it is last year for perfect example. I'll just expose myself here. But, you know, when Kim K, which is our South down you that we promoted pretty heavy last year, she came up for sale. And right in that moment, I probably had like 200 dollars in my bank account as I usually do and you know she brought like $2,500 or something and I was like well um, I'll figure out how to pay for this tomorrow but something inside me said buy that damn you and I tell you what that was our most winning you last year we pulled the most amount of banners with her because of that you we met and became close friends with the Meads family who's an incredible show family um, and I have no doubt will become a lifelong friend so um, I don't regret that for a minute and for that two moments of insecurity and should I take this swing or not, um, we found the money, you know, we got it done and I have zero regrets about it. So I agree with Denise, take big swings, take big risks, and I think they're going to pay off. With that being said, thank you both so much for being on my podcast today. I have learned so much as I always do from you guys and I think a lot of takeaway for those of you out there is take big swings make an operation that works for you and your environment and just like Josh said just do it because there's no other way to get full time and involved in this industry without just doing it so with that I thank you guys so much for being on thank you Cody Wow, what an episode. I always learn so much when I talk to those two, and I think it's really good to get a perspective from a commercially driven industry coming into this show industry. I think it's a fine line that we walk when we start raising show animals and really make a living in show animal production. Um, and I know that Maven Camp's just like all of us, they balance that line of how good do these animals have to be from a production standpoint and how much can we allow so that we can raise the caliber of animals that we need to um, in order to go out there and win so I really appreciate it to all of you guys who have listened no matter where your program is you're raising them in barns you're raising them out in the wild like they are out in Idaho do what works best for you that's the whole point of this episode is to find a program and a management program that really works and speaks to you thank you guys so much again we've got some big exciting episodes coming up so stay tuned for that mama said i'd end up train their trash if i stayed the road i was on our beer and Jake Hooker's tunes sure have kept me keeping on